couple other um, announcements, and that is um, uh, our speaker tonight, David Rumsey, has a new book. There's only a few copies. It's just come out, like literally this week. We have a, he's generally donated a few copies to the Long Now Foundation. They're back there, and he will graciously sign them if anybody wants to purchase it. They will be available in bookstores and Amazon shortly, if not, if not uh, this week. But we, we haven't been able to get any more copies than those. Okay, so um, my name is Kevin Kelly. I'm with the Long Now Foundation. Um, welcome to this month's talk. Our speaker is uh, David Rumsey, as I mentioned. His bio is on this card. This card it does multiple purposes. Besides having his little mini bio, which you can read, it's also a place to write your questions for him. The way this works, if you haven't been here before, is the folks in the yellow hats will be wandering around near the uh, latter half of the talk, collecting your questions, pass them over to them, they will bring them together, and uh, Alexander Rose will sift through them, and I'll sift through them, and we'll feed uh, David the questions that we seem to have time for. Also, if you would like to uh, continue to get notices, if you're not on our list already, the way these things are announced is we have an email list. If you want to put your email on this um, card, we'll add you to Stuart's email list, which he sends out. That's all that we do with it is just send out notices about these um, talks. The upcoming talks that we have, the next speaker uh, next month on the Friday is a Bruce Sterling, the science fiction author. If you haven't encountered Bruce, he's a force of nature. He gives an incredibly uh, vivid and um, mind-blowing, jaw-dropping talk, which I can guarantee would be very amusing and insightful. And um, his topic is uh, the singularity, your future as a black hole. So if you've been wondering about the coming spike, Bruce Sterling has some thoughts on it. He's not all in favor of it. Um, and then after that, we have Jill Tarter from SETI on the July. So um, I think I've got all the announcements. Uh, right. And... Um, what we're going to do is um, have uh, David give his talk, and then there'll be questions. So keep your questions for then if you can. If, of course, if you have something you just have to hear, you can shout it out. But we will try and do this in a more orderly way. David is um, uh, a very interesting guy. He has a wonderful website, which is, again, directed on your card here. You should check out his site. It's, it's an amazing. He's done an amazing thing with maps. It's a maps as you haven't seen them before, even though they're very old maps that he started with. As you'll see from his talk, we're trying to talk about maps as a way of, of thinking long term. Among the other things that, that are not mentioned on the bio that, that you may want to know is um, David um, has some property up by Gerlach. And if you're a Burning Man fanatic or regular, you might be interested to know that there are plans to put a power plant up near Black Rock, 10 miles away from Black Rock, and they're going to burn coal to generate electricity for California and Nevada. 
Uh, and so if you're interested in hearing more about ways to stop that, David's actually leading the charge on trying to keep out um, our electricity generation from a neighboring state. So um, David's also involved in that. So um, I don't want to take any more from, from David's talk. Generally, we like to kind of make a short intro and have David begin to tell us about maps in time. Welcome, David. Thank you, Kevin. Tonight I'm going to talk about mapping time. I think that the idea of place is central to all our experiences. Events and concepts usually have spatial components. Even ideas do. As you can see from this first group of maps and views on the screen, these are all taken from my book, and they'll be... They'll be just um, going by as I'm talking now in, in the beginning here. Cartography, as you can see from these images, gives us excellent tools for showing place and space. Yet until the last decade, maps had really been in decline, I think, for most people, used as, to be used as tools. But the rise of the Internet and GIS that's Geographic Information Systems. Most of you will know that as MapQuest. Uh, it's changed all that by making maps instantly and easily available to people according to their needs via their computers, their PDAs, cars, and even in print. This has increased public consciousness of the importance of maps and mapping in our everyday lives. People are relearning how to read maps. Reading maps is really a special skill, I think, just like reading music or a foreign language. Maps have symbols, annotations, place names, boundaries, terrain representation, all of which combine in ways to represent in two dimensions actual three-dimensional space. Once learned, the skill of reading maps open up, opens up new ways for us to visualize the importance of place in the present, the past, and in the future. Having a good sense of place and seeing the effects of time on our actions serves as a way of grounding us and gives a physical shape to our abstractions. I think the centrality of place can engender responsibility in the long term. If people have the tools to visualize place and space beyond just what you can see in front of your nose. As the world shrinks in conceptual size, it becomes even more important to be able to visualize our environment and our impacts on it. Maps can really help us to do that. Maps have always had a special appeal to me personally. I think I was born with an extra brain for spatial realization or something like that. When I was very young, I, I had all kinds of modern maps all around me all the time, but it was really later in my life that I discovered old maps or historical maps. Probably like a lot of you, I discarded maps that seemed out of date and then I amazed, one day I just I, I stumbled on a 19th century map and I realized this is history, this is visual history, and, and I was hooked. So I really I proceeded to, to, to collect a large number of old maps. So what are old maps? What do they really mean? Are they simply outdated information? Or can we use them to really see history? It's only in the last few years that 
the study of historical cartography uh, has become a, a serious uh, subject in, in universities. When I began collecting old maps over 20 years ago, really the period of mapping that most people knew about that was collected and amassed in institutions was from 1500 to about 1700. This is the time of sea dragons and very decorative maps. But the maps that, that I really liked were quite different. Instead of just showing you where things were, which is what the, the first period from 1500 to 1700, where America was, where South America was, maps starting around 1700 actually began to give us the feeling that we were in the space. They began to visualize space for us. And this is a hugely important change. Fortunately for me as a collector, uh, because I was collecting this neglected period, all the dealers would just send me the maps, send them to Rumsey, he'll, he'll buy this period. So I collected rapidly uh, and amassed over 150,000 maps by the time I kind of, it had run its course. <laughs> Collectors talk about their obsessions a bit as if it's a problem, you know, and uh, so I'm a recovered collector, and uh, the, the way that I really recovered, as it were, was to reverse the process with the same kind of passion to put the maps out, to make them available to the public, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how I did that later. So around 1700, what begins to happen is there's this amazing family called the Cassini family. And you see here uh, in this image, this is the cartouche of uh, grandfather Cassini's map called New, uh, New Map of France. And this family mapped France over three generations, from about 1740 to roughly 1815. And they used triangulation. You remember from your trigonometry the whole notion that you can tie actual space together in surveys with triangles. So he began in Paris, and we'll zoom in here, show you in Paris, this was the zero meridian, and from here they triangulated out the entire country, thereby giving us a really accurate scale and measurement of the whole uh, nation. This was radical, nobody had ever done anything like this before. So it, he divided the country up into about 200 equal sections, all at the same scale, and produce these fabulous maps, uh, which in my case, they're bound in an atlas. Uh, this is map sheet number one, published in 1762 of Paris. As we zoom in, this is all online on my website if you want to see any of this. Uh, we can see the incredible amount of cultural information that there is in this map. So Cassini, set a whole new approach to mapping. In this book that uh, Kevin mentioned that I just uh, finished and has been published, Cartographica Extraordinaire, it's a, a look at the history of mapping of this period as seen through the maps in my collection. Tonight I'll just do a very quick run through of the different periods of mapping and, and then I'll get into my online library and how that relates to uh, long-term thinking, I think. So starting in about the 1700s, after the influence of Cassini, we have explorers going out like Cook, La Perouse, and Vancouver and trying to map accurately the coastlines 
in, in this case of, of North and South America. This is Cook's mapping of Bering Strait. These were all done with triangulation uh, and great accuracy. La Perouse, 1797, he published. Uh, his, his expedition was lost at sea, actually, but uh, his map survived. This is his map of the Bay of Conception in Chile. And Vancouver, who's probably familiar to many of you, uh, 1798, he did his mapping here of the area around present-day uh, Seattle and Port Townsend. He worked with a Spaniard, Malaspina, who had his own expedition, but Vancouver beat him to the press by four years. Uh, so all these names are now English-speaking names. They could have been Spanish, but the, the Spanish had a very secretive aspect towards mapping. They, they didn't release a lot of it. They viewed it as sort of special power, whereas the, the British were sort of proto-internet, I think. They realized that fame is power, and so they won the, 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 the game of, uh, of, of naming places. At the same time, there was a debunking of sort of old myths, particularly California as an island, shown here, which many of us still think is the case. <laughs> this is from Herman Moll's Atlas, uh, 1732. They, of course, thought that the Gulf of California here, which does exist, they thought it continued all the way up through the Central Valley. This appeared in Moll's Atlas Minor. Emmanuel Bowen in 1747 showed how California looked Correct, correctly, uh, using the evidence of Father Kino, who actually walked it on the ground around 1700. And we can see the difference in the mapping. And he has a note here uh, on Father Kino's journey. So there was a lot of debunking of old myths. Then the next phase of this really is going into the interior of the United States, the expeditions of Lewis and Clark, published in 1814 and their monumental map that redrew the whole notion of what the Northwest was, they thought that this vast mountain chain that they had to cross and took them months and months and months was in fact just one high ridge. That's how it was drawn by Aerosmith. They thought they were going to climb up to the top and coast on down in their canoes all the way to the Pacific. Not the case. Uh, Humboldt in 1809 and 1811, very accurate mapping of New Spain and New Mexico. This is showing the northern Rio Grande around Santa Fe. Fremont later in 1848, the first accurate map of the Great Basin. Longnow's clock site is one of these snake-like chains. And then finally, towards the latter half of the century, the 19th century, you have the sort of great surveys by King. In this case, this, is, this gives you an idea of what we do digitally with these historical maps. These are the sheets of King's survey following the railroad. We, we knit them all together. In this case, this is the topographical sheets. These are the geological sh sheets showing different rock formations by color. William Henry Holmes, you saw that image uh, earlier. This is his fabulous panorama of the Grand Canyon. Drawn on the spot, you can see him over here in the top view. That's Holmes. 
he drew this in a way that we could never capture with photographs. Uh, he, he was the best sort of topographic draftsman of his age. He became the head of the Smithsonian Institution, very influential figure. So this was published in, a, in an atlas of the Grand Canyon in 1882. The rock formations perfectly delineated, amazing stuff. The third great survey was Ferdinand Hayden's mapping of the West. He mapped Colorado using these Cassini uh, uh, triangles that we mentioned. He laid his baseline down from Denver here, this six-mile baseline from east base to west base. The entire triangulation was based on that, tied the whole state together. And then finally, the fourth survey, the Wheeler survey, was a, uh, a military survey very rational, dividing the West into grids. Uh, eventually, all four of those surveys were combined into the USGS under Powell in the 1880s. Closer to the ground at the same time, there's a division of the land for settlement. This is the first township and range plat map in Ohio. This became the basis of all the township and range surveys in the American West. You know, if you fly over the Midwest or the far west, there's this grid. And uh, the grid started in Ohio and moved, moved west. We can see here the kind of unfortunate conjunction of that grid on Native Americans. Uh, here we have Lewis and Clark's map, 1814, showing two tribes, the Sisseton and the Wapiton tribes of the Sioux in Dakota, and you can see the way they drew this map as they're showing these tribes really ranging around a whole area. There's no sense of boundary. There's even annotations on the map that say the tribes meet here at a certain time of year. They move through this space. A mere 65 years later, we have this very sad triangle that has defined, they've been moved on to a reservation the triangle's the result of a negotiated treaty mentioned here February 19th, 1867. This is another kind of mapping that's happened. There's also political mapping. And this little animation here shows the growth of counties in Illinois, starting in 1820 with about uh, 22 counties and proceeding up through 1874 with 102 counties. Very rapid settlement. 1823, more counties, 31, 1838, 1840, 1845, so maps are showing this kind of change as well. At the same time, they're mapping the third dimension, trying to show the heights of mountains. This was a very common convention in the 19th century. They'd pile all the mountain ranges together and show the comparative heights between different continents and so on. They showed mountains on their sides here in 1778, Thomas Hutchins' map of the western parts of Virginia. Later then they used Hashuring, 1816, and Carrigan's map of New Hampshire. This is the White Mountains. 
becoming more accurate, seen from above, but they're still drawing in the old way here, more pictorially. Around the time of the Civil War, this is a map of uh, Harper's Ferry, north of Harper's Ferry. We can see they're using hachuring, which was really invented by the Swiss. It's a way to show contours, but they also use contour lines, which we're more familiar with. Over here on the right, uh, from the King survey that I showed you along the 40th parallel, along the railroad, they use uh, a shading, a very gentle, elegant shading technique. Finally, in the 20th century, uh, hypsometric tints. We're more familiar with this. This is showing elevation with color and with contour. And then today we have the ubiquitous satellite views with what we call digital elevation models. Digital elevation models are, are determined from above. They're accurate uh, tables of heights that are then shown pictorially in geographic information systems. There was also mapping of routes and, and ways people connected from place to place. Here's one of the earliest road maps, like a, a, a triptych of AAA, published 1802, one of the first uh, guidebook maps, the, the route from Pennsylvania to Washington, here crossing over the Susquehanna River. Canals, showing the, the Erie Canal here, just opened in 1825 passing through Rochester on an aqueduct, and here we have a view of it. It actually, the canal itself flowed across the rapids on a bridge. This map celebrates the completion of the railroad, Transcontinental Railroad in 1871 from New York to San Francisco. And then there's this whole problem with time that results. In 1860, Johnson, an Atlas publisher, thought he would tell everybody what the times were. These are, they used solar time in those days. They didn't have standard time. So it was noon in Washington. In Concord, New Hampshire, it was 12.22. In Raleigh, North Carolina, it was 11.54. In Boston, Massachusetts, it was 12.24. These are all in the same time zone today. Tallahassee, Florida, uh, 11.31. Trenton, New Jersey, it was 12.08. And in Columbia, South Carolina, it was 11.44. The railroads in, uh, developed the need to standardize time, and this was done in about 1883 because you had to know what time you were going to arrive. And these towns were very proud of their solar time. It was, it was really a true time, but it, it wasn't efficient in terms of the railroad, so they changed time. Also, we have now the beginning, the real precursor of the Internet here, uh, 1891, American Telephone and Telegraph, their map of their long-distance lines, which ended, began in Boston and New York, and it ended just at the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. They say 500 miles in return in five minutes, and you can sit in a soundproof booth, then in a mere eight years, 1898, uh, seven years actually, we can see the system now, this is the same map updated, extends all the way to Oklahoma, not to the west coast, but close. And now they say a thousand miles in return in five minutes. So things are speeding up. Finally, we have the whole growth of urban uh, areas. This is very dramatic. 
change in mapping. It's, it's close to the ground, so we see, you know, big scale changes. These are what we call large scale maps. Here's Boston in 1776 on the left and on the right in 1897. We can see the mill pond has filled in, the whole harbor has been built out, the public garden and back bay has been filled in. Same kind of change with Washington. Washington was a completely invented city like St. Petersburg in 1795. It existed simply as a plat, as a dream. But a hundred years later, the end of the 19th century here, it's, it's uh, been built out with all the important government buildings, although it still does not look like what it does today. The mall has not been completed. In, seven, in 1876, the centennial... Uh, St. Louis celebrated the 100 years of uh, anniversary of the United States' birth by publishing this huge bird's eye view. It's 22 feet by 8 feet, the largest oblique view of an American city. It was published as 110 individual sheets, but um, we knitted them all together digitally. You can see the boundaries. They fit fairly well. But this is an amazing view of an American city, sort of at the height of its of its uh, growth at that time. We zoom into the downtown, we can see Eads Bridge, which has just recently been uh, restored right here. Hustle and bustle, all kinds of business along the river and so on. These maps are somewhat idealized. I'm sure it was not quite like this, but it, it's an interesting view. So that's a quick look um, at the history of mapping. Uh, those are all taken from my book. There's one map in my book that is sort of a paradigm of all this change. And it's a map I made with my uh, GIS programmers. We call it this Lewis and Clark mosaic. We took, we geo-rectified, and I'll show you more about this, the Lewis and Clark 1814 map that I showed you parts of. That means we rubber sheeted it. We, we stretched it and turned it into correct geographical space, really made a completely new digital object. This took at least 60 points in the case of this map because it, it's rather inaccurate, particularly in the east-west dimension. They didn't understand longitude, so uh, if they didn't wind their clocks every morning, they used clocks to determine where they were with longitude, there would be inaccuracies. The north-south dimension was rather accurate. so. We georectified this map and several others, and then in, in GIS programs, we buffered 30 miles on each side of the Lewis and Clark map, blending out into the first accurate survey, 1879, of the U.S. General Land Office. That blends into this eight, uh, 1970 National Atlas, U.S. National Atlas, and then the whole thing is ringed here with modern Landsat satellite imagery. So we see a couple of hundred years of different mapping techniques as well as historical change all in one map. We made this for uh, our GIS friends, ESRI, at the conference, and they were very taken with it. We, we won first prize. We were called Most Unique. GIS people, geographic information systems people like the work I do. They publish the book that Kevin mentioned that's in the back. It's published actually by ESRI Press. They like it because they see it as providing the family tree for GIS, which in many ways it is. GIS does come out of old maps, particularly the period 
that I've been talking about, the more sort of rational scientific period of historical mapping. So all these maps live in a library. This is my library in San Francisco, shown in these uh, uh, sweeping sort of quick time views. For me, uh, when I finished collecting, as I said, I really wanted to figure out a way to do something interesting with the collection. I, I, I wanted to make it available to the public. I wanted to share the kind of excitement that I feel about old maps with all of you. Uh, so I did what most collectors do. I went around to the Library of Congress and Bancroft Library. Um, I went to Yale College and I support the Yale Library, so I went to the Yale Library. They're all very interested in, they would love to have my collection, promised that they'd keep really good care of it in the vault. I said, well, how will people access this? And they said, well, they'll fill out a pink slip. And I said, one item at a time? And they said, yeah, well, that's the only way to preserve it well. You don't want, you know, the people touching this stuff. And it was all kind of depressing to me, actually, because I thought, gee, I've been collecting for 20 years, and this is what's going to happen, you know? Because these things can't stay in private libraries all the time. Private libraries are very special. You know, they're places where there are no stacks. You can roam through these spaces and pull a book out of the shelf, compare it to a globe. And that was the kind of activity I did, and I wanted to maintain that kind of activity. Well, luckily for me, along comes the Internet, personal computing, high-resolution scanning, GIS, and suddenly in a virtual library, I felt I could recreate the sense of this private library using tools that, that I would invent with others. And so that's what I embarked on in about 1996. It, it took several years. I personally scanned 4,000 of the maps, which I actually really enjoyed doing because it gave me a, a, a very intense and close-up look at the maps. I scanned them very high resolution so that you can zoom in like this view of the city of San Francisco. We can zoom all the way into the Presidio, where this is 1868, where the Long Now offices are. Or we can look at overlays that I'll show you. This is where we are tonight. This is the 1869 map, and we're actually right here in this building, so it's a good thing we weren't here then because we'd, we'd be in the bay. This is a uh, transparent overlay We've georectified the old map, and you can see this is the aerial view of where we are now. So we're, we're offshore. And then finally, we also put things into three dimensions. This is a uh, view of Yosemite Valley by the Wheeler Survey in 1882. It's been really like shrink-wrapped into 3D, and we can do fly-throughs, which I'll show you later. So these are the kinds of tools that we developed I launched the site in uh, 2000 with about 2,200 maps. Uh, it was very well received. It's uh, davidrumsey.com or .org or .net. Take your choice. Um, I fund this work personally. The site is completely free. We allow free downloading of everything. It's really patterned on the Library of Congress site, which is... I've been very close with their map site. Um, I, I, uh, I handle really all, there's four of us that work on it, and um, it's a personal sort of passion of mine. 
We have about 7,000 visitors a day now, four years later, maybe 2 million a year. We have over 10,000 historical maps on the site. To give you some perspective, a, a physical map library like Stanford's will have about 5,000 map, 5,000 visitors to the map library every year. They're just, these are very large, unwieldy things. They're hard to deal with, but they're incredibly rich information resources. So we bring them onto the internet and then they're available really to almost anybody. We have over two terabytes of data on the site. Average image size, for those of you who follow those things, is 250 megabytes all the way up to two gigabytes. We try to serve the broadest range of users from the scholar to the, home, the homeschooler. In 2002, we, we won a Webby Award for technical achievement. We actually beat out Google, which <laughs> makes me look at my back a lot these days. But uh, So I think if old maps have a lot to tell us about the past and the future, really the only way that they're going to be able to do that, and I, I passionately believe that that's the case, is they've got to have, you've got to have access to them. So that's what this map library does. In the course of developing this map library, we essentially, uh, over this four-year period, we, we came up with what I call a series of sort of policies, approaches, attitudes towards what a really good online map library should be, but I think these same rules are good for any online image library, perhaps any kind of online library. They're sort of what I call the new library rules. One of them is you don't get wedded to one kind of software, particularly these days. We, we have so many different users, so many possibilities. We use an Insight browser that is JavaScript that instantly comes up, no download required. We, that's what people use when they first come to the site to see what we have, to see if it's useful. You try to keep the barrier very low at the beginning. Then we have a Java client in Insight, much more sophisticated tool, which I'll show you, requires a download. Then the GIS browser, which is Geographic Information Systems. This is uh, uh, the overlays that I showed you some of. This is a much more sort of mediated experience, uh, uh, less of a database orientation, but very powerful analytical tools. And then finally, this collections ticker, which is sort of a way to have unstructured searching. The Insight browser opens up. It has 20 thumbnails per page. Our view is we like to allow visual examination and browsing. We have complete Boolean searching over here uh, with text fields, but you can also just click on these carrots and move through if you're patient and really love maps. You could go through the whole collection little by little. When you found something you like, you click once on it, it opens up the catalog record. This is Henry Popple's map 1733. You can get the file data here, which this is a very large map. It's eight feet by eight feet. So it's 24,000 pixels by 24,500 pixels. You can enlarge it. You can compare it. You can open multiple windows here. We're comparing the index sheet to the Popple map, to the map itself. And then we can zoom in to increasing levels of detail. Here we go into New York City. There's eight levels of zoom. Maps are wonderful because each time you're getting closer, you get a completely different sense of the space, particularly with these old engraved maps. Uh, 
it's very rewarding to have this high-resolution scanning. The Java client looks very similar, but it has 50 thumbnails per page. You can scroll down through them, and it allows you to select multiple images and bring them all into one Java-enabled workspace so you can move them around like you're holding them in your hand. This is very important to have this sense of sort of ownership of these digital objects that you can actually feel like you're dragging them around. At the, at the Wired Next Fest that Kevin got me into, uh, they have these nice tables where you can drag images uh, around on them. Uh, I think this is the future. You can enlarge these maps. You can get the data record. All this is done in Java, so it's quite a bit more elegant. And uh, you can enlarge the data window. You can do drag zoom like in Photoshop and go right into the image. You can pan with the panning tool. And then you can measure distance actually with the measurement tools. Distance between points or you can measure area. So this is sort of a, a semi-GIS. And you can also see images in relative size. Digital images of Things like this, they tend to all look the same size, but when you do relative size, you realize, oh, this chart here of, San of, of New York Bay, 1844, is huge compared to that little roadmap book. And then you can, we have tools really more for scholars, which are annotation tools. You can make notes. You can put in links to other kinds of maps. Perhaps not quite so attractive, but still very interesting. New York City subway map. Um, you can make presentations, which are like slideshows. This was developed by the Yale Art History uh, program along with Luna Imaging, the maker of this software, of which I should say I'm a, I'm a director. I started as a client of theirs when I launched my site and then became involved with the company trying to get them to, to create special tools and so on. So you can create this whole slideshow that is pre-programmed. It, it replaces essentially the old sort of two-projector approach in art history, the showing images. allows you to have a, a full image here like the cartouche of the 1703 map. This is a talk I gave on um, devotional landscapes mapping uh, sacred sites in New Spain at Berkeley about a month ago. So I show the cartouche, then I can overlay the whole map that the cartouche is from. I can zoom in, in this case, to northern New Mexico and show Taos and Santa Fe, show Humboldt's wonderful atlas that I showed you some maps from before 1811. This is his map from Veracruz to Mexico. We are looking at the volcanoes just outside of Mexico in plan here. Then we can bring in the view of them that's in the atlas, and we can overlay that. Or we can do the same thing with Orizaba. And we can even bring in from the atlas the sectional drawing, showing the elevation change from sea level here all the way to Mexico. Or looking at uh, the, uh, the uh, Mission Dolores here in San Francisco. In this coastal chart from the early 1850s, we can see very sparse settlement around it. You can bring in 1859 chart, see how that has now filled in and grown, and then we can put them side by side. And then also look at this uh, 
different chart from the late 1860s. See Mission Dolores, Mission Creek, Mission Bay. This is all drawn then topographically. So these are the kinds of things, uh, and then this view. This is the Courier and Ives view of San Francisco, 1870s, and we can see Mission Dolores here in the view. The other thing we do is GIS browsers. I mentioned um, GIS is, is, is powerful stuff. It's, it's until recently been really just a desktop application, like a CAD application that architects would use, but it's now coming onto the Internet. And uh, so we did a lot of work with desktop GIS or geographical information systems. For us, what that meant, as I said, is, is stretching old maps into correct modern space so that we could then overlay one to each other, an old map to an old map, or compare an old map with modern data, like roads and so on. So we have San Francisco, Boston, Lewis and Clark. We've just done um, a site for Long Now on the Snake Range in Nevada, Washington, D.C., Japanese historical maps, and New York City. Is Boston. Here's uh, this old map of Boston that I showed you before, before it's been georectified. You georectify it in a desktop application. Then here's the modern view of Boston. We overlay now the map, and you can see it fits into correct space. We can be sure of that by overlaying the, the modern harbor. We can overlay the vector layers. These are our, our, our database layers of the rivers and then the parks, and then the road system, and even the detailed road system. So this gives us a very powerful analytical tool for seeing change. We, we will do typically on each of these sites uh, 15, 20, 30 maps from different periods so that you can compare them. So this is 1836. These are all georectified now. You notice they're turned and twisted, 1841. 1846, 1856, 1872, 84, and then 97. We also did a Lewis and Clark site, as I said. We collaborated with the East Asian Library doing, um, I think, a wonderful site of Tokyo with uh, at least 20 maps beginning in 1650 of Edo, seeing how they changed over time. Also, Kyoto and Osaka, Washington, D.C., New York City, as I mentioned, Chicago. And I'll, I'll show you in San Francisco, see, show you how this works. We have our historical layers over here on the, on the left side. We zoom in, and we'll zoom in to pretty close to where we are tonight. You can see... Here's Fort Mason over here, where we are. We're going to zoom in to these buildings here, which are long now offices. This is where I did my talk last night. This is the long now office building right here. In this Java-enabled map uh, imager, we have a slider here. We have this modern map on the bottom, a digital orthophoto, and on the top we have the 1869 map. As we move the slider slowly, we can see that the Long Now building was just at the edge 
of the wetlands, really, in 1869. We can see the Presidio here. And we can pretty much trust this overlay because we've spent a lot of time, you know, stretching that map to get it into correct space. We could accomplish this, as I used to do in my private library, holding that map on one side and an aerial photo on the other, and then you'd rely on your brain to do this transparency. But to us, this is the power of computing to be able to sort of assist in that process and uh, let you see even more. Then we can keep blending. We can change layers. Then we'll, now we'll move the slider and we'll blend in a 1905 map. We'll skip ahead 36 years. And now we can see that they filled in a good part of the wetlands. There are new buildings. We'll blend in now the 1926 chart, and we can see they filled everything in. They even, at that point, had the uh, Palace of Fine Arts built. And then we can finally end up with the modern digital raster graphic, we call it, which would be your USGS map showing Doyle Drive and so on. We also built a quad viewer, it's called, where we can see all of these maps instead of as layers, we can see them in four windows. This is another way that our minds can extract things from these maps. Again, these are maps of all different sizes. Now they're in the same scale. We can change layers in any of the windows. And then when we zoom out, all the windows move together. They're all at the same, they're all tied together in GIS. We can pan over and they all pan together. And then we'll zoom into where we are tonight and we can see Fort Mason and we're right about here. We'll bring in the, the aerial view and we can keep changing layers. So this is a powerful visualization tool. We can even pan over to where we are and then do our blending that I showed you earlier. zoom in a little bit, and then we can see the common practice in San Francisco of underwater streets, we called it, when I was in the real estate business. Real estate is literally and metaphorically underwater here. I actually own a couple of underwater lots in India Basin. I've never seen them there. But until the Protect the Bay legislation was passed, people would buy underwater lots and just the family would go out on the weekend with their truck and wheelbarrow and fill these things in. That was progress. <laughs> One of the problems um, that as, as this site built up to 5,000 maps, 6,000, 7,000 maps, 8,000 maps, and now 10,000 maps, we became concerned that if people don't know what's inside, how are they ever going to find out? How are they ever going to be surprised? And, how can we introduce the notion of sort of serendipity here, that, that something would just come out that would surprise you without, you know, searching for California or searching for maps of 1850. So we developed something in Flash called the Collections Ticker, and I'll show it here simulated to you because uh, we don't have Internet here tonight. But what it does, it's like a stock ticker. 
and the thumbnails sort of happily parade across in front of you in random order. And if you just leave this on the bottom of your desktop and go about your email, and eight hours later you'll have seen the whole collection. When you see something that you like, you mouse over it and you'll get the full, the title and the author and the date. And then you can click on it and it'll go into the Insight database and bring up all the enlargement tools that I've been showing you, the data window. So while it's frivolous, it can lead to some serious examination. You can also change direction. You can have it random or ordered. So this has been very popular with some of our users. At this point, though, we had so many ways to view the collection and we were being visited by people from all over the world, we figured we'd better make a tour in Flash. So we created this in English, Spanish, French, German, and Italian, uh, explaining all the functions of the site. And this has been very helpful to people. So those are sort of the ways of four of the ways that we provide tools for people to see this library. The other thing, another policy that we early on developed was that it's very important that uh, the materials from the site be able to combine with other databases, that they're not just locked into their own space, but they could be combined with other kinds of maps, such as these Japanese historical maps or paintings or whatever. And I worked hard with Luna Imaging to make sure that this software could support uh, what we call cross-collection searching between different image databases that may have been cataloged entirely differently as long as they were in the Insight software. So these are Japanese historical maps that I put online for the East Asian Library at Berkeley. They're wonderful things. This is a 40-foot long scroll of the road from Tokyo all the way to the island of Kyushu from 17, about 1700. It's hand-painted. Here's Edo, the city. The shogun at that time required his uh, nobles to travel to Edo every year as a test of loyalty. So this was a common sort of style of map. It was called the Tokaido Road. It went past Mount Fuji. So we can, we can open up this Japanese map collection and combine it with my own collection. We can compare European-style maps of Japan from my collection with indigenous Japanese maps. So here we have Bowen's map, European style, showing Edo, sort of what you'd expect. And this is Ishikawa's map from 1694 showing Tokyo in much more pictorial fashion. There was this convention called Yogi Maps where towns are shown as lozenges. So the Japanese have an amazing sort of style in this period of a combination of real space and pictorial space. We can combine uh, maps and paintings. This is the Amico Library that I distribute for about 40 North American museums, 120,000 images of wonderful art from the Frick Collection, Cleveland Museum. So we can, in the Insight software, combine my maps with the Amico library. The software goes in, gets both collections. Then we can, in this case, I opened up this 1768 map of India. I zoomed into Delhi and found the Royal Gardens, and as luck would have it for my talk tonight, 
I found an image of the Royal Gardens in the Amico Library. These are the kinds of combinations we can create. Or Japanese historical maps and the Amico Library. We search for Kyoto. And it brings up images of Kyoto and screens. All of these collections historically have been really, you know, separated physically. Uh, these are different kinds. You don't, you don't, people didn't curate maps and prints uh, and paintings together. They were all separate. With the Internet now, we can combine these things, which I think is very exciting. So we can look at this view of the bridge at Sanjo Circle, 1832, crossing the river in Kyoto. And we can zoom in on the 1709 map of Kyoto with the same bridge and showing what was surrounding it at that time. I share my collections with uh, Stanford University and Yale University. Stanford has the Kirscher correspondence collection and Chicana art and my maps. We can open them all together. They're cataloged in very different standards. That's all I'll say. So the, it seems obvious, but it's, it's actually a real computational challenge to map across what we call different metadata or cataloging standards and combine these collections together. So we do a search on Chile and we bring up letters written from Santiago, Chile to Kircher who was in Rome, and a map from my collection that shows Chile at roughly the same time. Then we can go into the Amico library and open up art objects from about the same period. Uh, I share my collections with Yale University. Here we can look at my map of Pyramid Lake showing Pyramid and Anahoe Island from the Wheeler Survey, 1880s. Yale had a photograph taken by O'Sullivan, who was with the survey, at the same time. So we can combine those kinds of things, or just more purely abstract combinations. I love doing this kind of stuff. Judy Chicago's dinner played with my 1811 map of the country around New York, or Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty. You can see I went to art school. Um, on a more serious note, I also believe it's important for an effective image library to make its contents available to entirely different kinds of, of, of programs and software. So this is the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative that I've worked with for years, a group of historians around the world working with GIS uh, to improve their study of history. So they access all my maps in my database. They bypass the Luna software, bypass the GIS software, and they have their own special brew here of uh, how my maps show. They've, they've georectified all eight or 9,000 of them in a kind of rough georectification, and this is how they appear in their database. I also make my GIS maps available through the Geography Network, another shared uh, database that's open to people. And you can bring up our Tokyo maps and see them in the Arc Explorer browser or in our own browser, either way. The other thing we discovered that in order to be available to you all, you can't just have one front door. You can, but it's hard to find. You know, who's DavidRumsey.com. Who's going to search for that name? I mean, we only have a certain number of pages that comprises the sort of entry tools to the collection, but the real richness of data describing the maps, like that 
the map of the Grand Canyon by William Henry Holmes, 1882. That's all in the internal database. And the, the Internet spiders, Google's wonderful spiders, cannot get to that database today easily. So what we did is, uh, and I'll show you this a little later, we, we created ways for uh, Google to catalog all our things. Before we got to that, we actually did a more traditional cataloging. We make all our records available in uh, OCLC, which is a shared uh, database that all the major libraries subscribe to. So California Digital Library, which is Berkeley and the whole system, they have all our records. If you search for John Disternell's map of Mexico, you'll find our record. The difference is we have this hot link that gives you complete electronic access to the digital image. So we actually comprise 20% of all the records in uh, the California Digital Library that actually give you the goods, as we say, that give you the link. So you click on our link, you go into the database, open the map, and zoom right in. And so you're not only getting the catalog record, you're getting access to the real image. In Google, as I said, we, we basically uh, created pages for every single item in the database. So if you search for Panorama from Point Sublime, you get our page in Google. This is what it looks like. It has the full catalog record. You can click on the image. It opens up our tools. And here's our friend, Mr. Holmes, sketching away in 1882. We also get all our images into Google Images, which I'm sure a lot of you use. Um, by Google, the Google image bot catalogs according to the alt tags. So our alt tags are about as elaborate as they come. They're actually library records. And that gets us into Google images as well. So if you search terrestrial globe in Google, up we come. If you search for uh, Lewis and Clark, we're third of about 326,000. If you search for Boston Historical Map, we're first out of 305,000. We have a very high page rank in Google because we're a free site and we're linked by over almost 7,500 other sites in the four years that we've been up. We also contribute to more scholarly things like Open Archives Initiative. I have real question as to just how valuable these things are in the long run. Um, the academic world is going through a lot of throws right now. They feel very displaced by Google. I was at a library conference all day today at Stanford. I'm on the Stanford Library Board with Stuart Brand. And it's just uh, Google is becoming the library. And um, yet there still are things to be learned in these more specialized uh, search engines. So we contribute everything to Open Archives Initiative. If you search Map of England, in their OAI stirred, brings up our records, and in you go, and so on. Um, my latest project is this site called Visual Collections. This is uh, over 30 collections, uh, about 35 actually, almost all of them free, that are in the InSight format. Cartography, fine arts, architecture, photography, other. It's a portal, really, um, for the public, to look at these wonderful collections. This is the cartography, which of course, given my interest is first. It's got my map collection, maps from the University of Edinburgh and Scotland, Stanford's maps of Africa, 
Japanese historical maps, University of South Florida map collection, fine arts uh, is quite large, the Amico library that I showed you, MOAC from uh, 77,000 free images from the uh, California Digital Library, Herbert Johnson Museum of Art. Um, I'm trying to encourage, these are all institutions that use the Insight software and are building collections, and I try to encourage them to contribute whatever level of sort of intellectual property they feel they can let go. So for instance, most of them will give you all resolution, but the Johnson Museum was concerned uh, about legal uh, problems with living artists, so they, they didn't want to violate their trust. So I basically convinced them to give us, you know, a large thumbnail to start out, sort of put their feet in the water. So we have over 18,000 images, wonderful cataloging, with a small view image. I, I feel over time, I'm sure they will, uh, they'll increase that size, but these are the kinds of things you, you run into. So we have photography, architecture, other Farber Gravestones collections that I sponsored, the American Antiquarian Society, 13,527 images of early American gravestones. Here's one of them going by. Amazing stuff. And then you can view all. To me, this is the one, one version of the digital image library of the future. It's distributed. It's coming out of special collections in libraries and museums, and because it shares a common platform, we can, we can open up all of these collections together if we want. Normally you'd open up one at a time, but if you want to blend them, you can. So that's uh, uh, another way that uh, I provide um, access to these materials. It's important to be able to track users, to understand who's coming to this internet library, so we, we use web tracking software. This is February 17th. We had 7,336 visitors that day. They came from mostly the United States, which is you'd expect, but also Canada, United Kingdom, Germany, France, lots of countries. And cities, we can, we can see 1,386 cities that they came from. We can see the top pages that they view. We can see their paths through the site. We can look at the search engines that referred them to us, and Google's always on top. We can look at the search terms that they used. Obviously, old maps, historical maps, but maps of the West Indies. This is very helpful to us in understanding what people are looking at. I think a library like this should also provide sort of special services we provide printing through Art Select of a, about 130 maps, framed, unframed, archival inks and paper. But we also allow free downloading of the entire images if you want to use them in publication or uh, for printing yourself in the Mr. Sid format, which is highly compressed, or in a JPEG format. A library like this should also be able to repurpose its content, and an obvious one is books. Uh, I've worked on two books that were built out of, largely built out of this library, this online library. This is the cover map of my friend Paul Cohen's book on mapping the West that Rizzoli Press issued. 
I did the introduction to the book and provided about half the images. It was a real eye-opener to work with Rizzoli. When I was growing up, they were sort of the, the, the incredible press that I worshipped. I said, I was so proud to tell them, well, you can go online now and I can show you these, these cool digital images and we can work with everything. And they said, oh, no, Dave, we don't, we don't look at websites. Will you just send us some slides? They said, take the digital images and convert them back to slides. And because and, that's what we're used to working with. And I said, well, well, what are you going to do with them then? And they said, well, we'll convert them back to digital images then. <laughs> it took about three months of working on them, and I almost abandoned the project. I was so frustrated, and then they finally began to get it. And then when they got it, they really got it. And uh, so we worked on all the images, and at the very end of publishing the book, they were in a terrible jam. They needed a frontis map. Uh, they had miscalculated. They need an image quickly. They had only five days to get it to the printer in Hong Kong. So they said, could we just download it from the site? And I said, absolutely. That's what I've been wanting you to do all along. <laughs> so they've become believers, and now they call me up. They want to do more books. They see these 10,000 images, and they think, there's a lot of books here. <laughs> so these are some of the, uh, uh, the maps. These are the ways we laid them out. And then this book that is here tonight, Cartographica Extraordinaire, was really entirely constructed uh, from the site. I wrote it with Edie Punt. Edie is a wonderful cartographer. She's the chief cartographer at ESRI Press. It took us about two years to do this book. We used the GIS software here on the site to build the cover, this morph of the 1842 map to the uh, aerial view. We, each chapter in the book uh, became a group in insight. That means it's like a favorite, a group of favorites. She is in Los Angeles. I'm in San Francisco. So we would be on the phone, both of us on the, on the, on the website, looking at the same maps, laying out pages, and so on. And then in the back of the book, as it's published, there is a complete Cardo bibliography, like a bibliography of all the maps with their list number on the website. So you can go onto the website and look at the high-resolution image if you want to explore it further or see the context. For instance, this Herman Moll map that I showed you of California, you can see the whole atlas if you want, that it, it, that it is a part of. I also did an exhibit that was built out of the, uh, the, the website. This is at the San Francisco Airport Museum in the Delta Terminal. They, it's called Mapping America. Uh, they were wonderful to work with. They're the only accredited museum at an airport in the United States. Very finicky. They wore white gloves when they came to my library, something we never do. So they, they took better care of my materials than I did, which means that I, I, I really like working with them. And we, this was up for eight months, and we just took it down, and the materials are, as they say, resting in their um, conservation lab, and then they're putting it up in the International Terminal in November. So you'll get a chance to see it there if you'd like to see it. But it's a series of windows uh, with themes, like rivers and coasts and so on. And each window, we created a group. We used that relative size tool that I told you to get everything in their proper relationship so we could lay out the entire exhibit uh, beforehand and get it pretty darn close. So the curator had a lot of fun with this um, 
He had never done this kind of thing before. We also then used a lot of digital images, fly-throughs, zoom-in, zoom-outs in the exhibit itself. The other principle that we've worked with a lot is, and I I mentioned this in the beginning, is very high-resolution scanning. It's so important to do it right once. You don't want to go back and have to scan these again. So we, we scan at least 300 pixels per inch up to 800 pixels per inch. The general principle is what's the smallest object that you need to render? Make sure that you can see it. We always show these things in their context, like that map that you just saw is a pocket map. It, here it is folded in its covers. We can zoom in to such a level we can even see my conservator's repairs with Japan paper. Pocket maps tear on the corners always. High resolution like the popple map I showed you. Then we try, it's very important to show these objects in the physical space. So these are QuickTime VR versions of what I showed you in Panorama earlier. This is the map library. You can pan around, move through it, zoom in. You can even, you have hotspots. Yeah, we're a little obsessed with this kind of examination. <laughs> but with the, um, the hotspots, then you can, I have to do this uh, in animation, so bear with me here. Um, you can zoom in, and we'll pretend we're zooming in here. And again, it goes into the Luna database, and you can open it up. And this is the map here of Narragansett Bay lying on the table. Here's the digital version, and we can zoom right in and see it very clearly. The last thing that we felt that we should do is because we're a small sort of independent group and a a lot of what I do is I'm on a lot of library boards. That's really what I do now. I volunteer for libraries as well as building digital libraries. We wanted to take some chances and try some crazy new things. So one of them was we really liked 3D GIS, which we did here on this desktop application. This means, you know, adding heights. So this is... uh, 1926 map of San Francisco Bay. It's been georectified. This is a bathymetric model of the bay in GIS. We were able to drape the old chart on top of the bathymetric model. And now instead of relying on these figures and trying to use our brain to say, oh, this is deeper here, this is less deep. Now we can actually see it in a kind of virtual reality and we can see how the Golden Gate was gouged out over time through tidal action. We exaggerate this in GIS. This is obviously not the true depths, but it's uniformly exaggerated, uh, seven to one. Or we can pull back to the Berkeley Hills, and we can see how Treasure Island was filled in for the World's Fair in the late 30s, because this map was uh, 1926, and the island was only that big at that time. The digital elevation model is the true modern heights, and this is the little yacht harbor. So this is the Yosemite map that I showed you earlier, 1883. We georectify it, combine it with a digital elevation model, and this little animation can show you how we stretch it to give a real sense of depth, and then we can fly through this space. 
So we've built a number of sites like this, Lewis and Clark, Tahoe, San Francisco, and uh, Los Angeles. This Los Angeles map is very special. This was rescued from a dumpster, no less, by a dealer friend of mine. It's one of a kind. It's manuscript. It's, it's pencil and ink. It was done uh, by William Hammond Hall. He was the first state engineer of, uh, in California. It was done about 1880, we think, and it, it's the Los Angeles Basin. And it's all about water. It's showing all the water courses and some of the physical, uh, political features. It, it's, it's a work in progress. It was never really finished. It's a fabulous, unique map. We put it into GIS here. We combine it with a digital elevation model, and now we have it in three dimensions. So we do this in desktop GIS, but we, again, what we wanted to do, we're, we're popularizers, so we wanted to create a way that you could look at this in your browser. So we worked with gaming programmers, you know, who provide all the fly-throughs, and we said, so let's fly through a historical map the same way you'd fly through one of these shoot-em-up games that uh, you make so much money from. So they came up with a way to do this, and it's a, uh, if you go to my site, it's a free download of something called Virtuals Web Player. And it, it, uh, we have the map. And now we can look at the map in three dimensions and get a whole other view of it. This, this tool is called the inspection tool, and it rotates it on an, on an axis. Then we have a... Uh, a hover tool, which I've never ma mastered. It's like a helicopter. The, the gamers are better at this than I am. But hopefully, if you crash, it's not a big deal because <laughs> it's just pixels, you know. So this allows us to, um, to go in, and I use the mouse to, uh, to navigate. Instead of zooming in and out and panning, you know, now we're in a mu much more free sort of approach. We can look down. Here's downtown Los Angeles, the old town, the railroad going out to the San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley is just arroyos. And we'll turn before we crash and we'll head out along the railroad towards San Bernardino. We'll gain a little elevation here. And the railroad here, this is San Bernardino, actually follows the San Andreas Fault right through there. So we'll turn, go over towards the coast. We'll be a little daring and fly right through the edge of the mountain here just for fun. But coming to the coast, these are features that, it's interesting, I had never noticed in the you know, paper map, but these are the esteros and the wetlands. They're beautifully drawn in. These, this is now Huntington Beach, Newport Harbor, Long Beach, you know, it's a whole other world. It's, it's long gone. So the specific Palisades. So these are the kinds of things that we can do in a, in a 3D GIS with old maps, kind of visualization. We also created a, a GIS for the Long Now Foundation, which we just launched yesterday. And uh, I was showing them last night. 
This is the two-dimensional GIS. This shows um, Long Now's property is in eastern Nevada. I'm sure many of you know about this. This is where the 10,000-year clock is going to be placed. And I thought it would be a good idea to create some kind of spatial visualization tools that would show everybody who wanted to go online just what this country looks like now and the way it looked like uh, over 100 years ago. So this is the two-dimensional GIS with various layers. This is one of the satellite views. Here's the, the, the snake range right here where the Longnow site is. Here's a more detailed satellite view. Here's the Wheeler map, um, historical view of the area in uh, about 1873. We can zoom in and see Wheeler Peak, which he named for himself, of course. And the Longnow site is right about here. We can change layers. Remember, all these things fit on top of each other now. Here is the Longnow property. These are the ranches in Spring Valley. And we can zoom in even further, get a better look. Change layers. We can see Mount Washington now, Kirkaby Ranch. And um, Alexander Rose gave us some very exotic maps, aeromagnetic map, a, a gravity map, a geological map, another geological map, and the uh, USGS sort of hiking map, digital raster graphic. And then we added this uh, aerial view in black and white, which is very high resolution. You can overlay the roads the Forest Service land or the Great Basin National Park boundaries in green. And then we can zoom in in this black and white layer to pretty close to the ground. Also, we can look at it in the quad viewer that I showed you earlier, four different views of it. Zoom in, they move together, and so on. We also did, of course, a three-dimensional GIS for them. And this is, this is a little flash preview that we always do on these GIS sites so you can get a sense. With this one, we actually blended it. Here's the historical map, and then it changes back to the modern map. Um, opening it up in the uh, virtuals player, you can now see the thing in 3D. So here's roughly the Long Now site here. And again, we can, we can do the, the fly-through with this. And with this one, we actually now enable, you can go in as you're moving in, and you can blend in the historical map with different transparencies and see change over time. So these are some of the three-dimensional things um, that we've done as well. Um, so mapping time, um, what does that mean? It's, 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 I guess the way that I approach mapping time is if you can look back through these historical maps and through these tools that I've been showing you tonight, 
and see historical change. I think it gives you a real sense of our effect on the environment, how the physical environment has changed over time. And I think that just engenders a real sense of responsibility about the future. We can see that we have powerful effects on the environment. The, the, Aztec, uh, the Aztecs actually did map time. And I found this in a uh, 18, it was, it's a reproduction of an Aztec map from Garcia Cubas's Atlas of Mexico, 1858. It shows the peregrinations, the travels of the Aztecs over about a 400-year period, starting here in Atlan, their home, their ancient home, right here in the blue square, about 900 AD, and then moving along this path. Each one of these vegetative symbols is one Aztec year, 52 of our years. And they moved through about 400 years until about 1325, people think, when they settled in Mexico City. All kinds of interesting things going on along the way, shown in symbols, problems they encountered, obviously. And then they wind up in Mexico City. So this is a pictogram of time. How could we possibly do this? ESRI has just, in, in GIS, uh, released a new kind of tool for showing us GIS in a globular projection. Now we have the globe. We can turn layers on and off. Instead of a flat map, we can turn off the ice sheet, turn it on. We can actually see the world now as it is. And this is in a very important change in mapping because this is bringing virtual reality into mapping. We can see the lights of South Korea compared to the darkness of North Korea, the world at night. We can see the physical boundaries, which are rather arbitrary, and then we can change that to the, the linguistic boundaries. These are all the languages of the world and we can identify them with the identifying tool and see what they are. So this kind of mapping allows us really to begin visualizing almost real space. It's almost questionable whether is this really a map. It's, it, obviously it is because data like this is an abstraction, but it, it becomes possible to make this more and more real. And I think eventually these, will, these images will be fed by live satellite cameras so you'll have real images of the earth. Here's the reef hotspots, the ocean, uh, the fishing zones and economic zones and the bathymetry and then the white lines are the fishing routes. So these are the kinds of maps that you can instantly make yourself in GIS and begin to visualize the future, begin to think about the future. I think this is what's coming in the next, whatever, five, ten years. Zooming into Haiti, because this whole uh, map, as it were, is driven by a database, it has digital elevation models built into it. So now we can turn our globe obliquely and see things in three dimensions and, and begin to move through the space flying over. So this is a very different kind of mapping. You know, it's, um, this is actually um, released by ESRI uh, just this month. But what 
what has yet to grow is, is all the data that's going to feed this. They've created the platform, the data is growing, but I'm convinced that there will be so much data in the next five or ten years, we're all going to be overwhelmed with data, that uh, here we're going to look at, we're going to go to Port-au-Prince, the capital, and zoom way down in. We're going to have so much data that we'll need tools like this to organize the data, to make sense of it. I think mapping will, will really become almost a, a necessity. We'll be actually creating our own data through GPS, global positioning systems. We're putting out our own signals as to where we are. That's done now in cars, of course, but uh, uh, I think it'll, it, it, that will feed into this system. You'll be able to see where you are on these modern maps or even where you are on historical maps. Civil War historians will use geo-rectified versions of my maps and they'll walk through battlefields and they'll see themselves on their laptops as they're walking as little dots in the old map and discover things that way. So we'll be able to do this kind of moving around to actually go and look at places, perhaps to get the news, to see what's happening. Or if we want to just express data, in this case, endangered species. We want to understand where are they. So we change our vertical exaggeration to three now, and we can see red represents the most endangered, light blue the least. We can see their distribution in North America along the Appalachian Mountains in Florida and in the California West and a little bit in Alaska and even in Hawaii. So it's, it's a powerful visualization tool, particularly when it goes into this globular projection, a much more real way of, of looking at the, at the data. And then finally, there'll even be, I think, certain kinds of just flying through for the sake of moving. Here we're moving across the U.S., headed west, crossing the Mississippi. And the Missouri River and then coming up on the Rockies here. The South Pass area. I think with this kind of technology, there's just almost no limit to the possible uses of these maps. GIS is beginning to be able to map time as well. Uh, that's coming. It's but you can imagine if you have different data sets showing different conditions, you'll be able to see sort of current change. GIS can map pollution in the last two or three hours. To me, this is, um, this is the future. I think as we struggle to think long term, these new kinds of maps will be able to assist us in that process by taking us into places through virtual reality like I've shown you. And by creating, through 3D visualization, images on how environments might change, by letting us dream more powerfully about space and place in the past and in the future, then we can truly say that we're mapping time. Thanks very much.
Thank you. Thank you, David. So uh, if you have questions, uh, make sure you get them to the folks in the yellow hard hats. They'll pass them on to me, pass them to the end. I have a question, David. Okay. Um, this is no name, so I, it, it, write your name on so we can have you identify yourself. Um, what is the longest time spent developing a map? Since we're talking about yeah. time and maps. Um, well, I think the, the Cassini family of three generations has to rank as sort of one of the longest periods of developing a whole atlas. Of course, it was 200 maps, and the grandfather did whatever, a third, and his son another third, and uh, then the grandson another third. But um, usually, most of the maps that I was showing you tonight, the historical maps, were probably... Uh, there's two phases to them. One is the collection of data with Lewis and Clark. That could take years. And then there was the actual copper plate engraving that had to be done, and that was, that's just real art. And that would take often months. So very long time periods relative to what we can do now in this kind of GIS, which is essentially instant mapping particularly when you're talking about data coming from sensors that are out in the environment that are absolutely just, you know, collecting data about our world. So it's, it's a big change, speeding everything up. Okay, a question from, um, it's like Dave Coleman. Dave, you want to raise your hand? Um, it says here, what's left to map? Well, there was that image of Mars. There's a lot of um, space to map, certainly. There's, there's new worlds to map. Um, there's so much left to map. I mean, what, what you're seeing here with this globe is, uh, to me, I look at this globe and I just think about all the different possible views of it and um, all the different time views of it, too, over, over many years. So I think there's still a lot to map uh, in the future. The follow-up question from, um, it's like Eckert, um, says, uh, speaking of Mars, um, will Mars and other planets eventually be online for all? I would think so. Why not? I mean, you could have satellites circling Mars. Uh, we know the technology exists today. Our, our military has it. We don't get it, but there's, you know, the most we get, these, these images I was showing you of the Long Now Mountain, they're resolved to what we call one meter, meaning that you can um, detect one something one meter in size. The military has mapping that's probably uh, ten times as uh, accurate as that. So I think we will be able to see live maps of planets. Uh, that's looking quite a bit ahead because it takes a while for the data to come back. But uh, I think you can see that really the whole notion of of news will change, media will change. Why should you rely on a on a on a um, talking head to tell you what's going on in the environment when you can see for yourself? Here's a question from uh, Paul Wingate, and it says, uh, "Is there a map showing war zones over time?" 
Oh, yes. Uh, wars create a huge number of maps, always. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's also kind of fortunate, too, they, uh, for, for historical purposes. The, the, the U.S. Civil War created an enormous number of maps, battlefield maps, uh, maps showing the positions of the armies. Um, so there's a whole genre of war maps that, that exists. Uh, Today we have a different version. If you follow events in Iraq, it's more of these 3D fly-throughs and things like that. Um, the Army is a big user of GIS. There's no question about it. It's, uh, all, the whole military uses it. Government uses it a great deal to understand, hopefully, things about us. Uh, here's a question from Anonymous Coward. It says... Uh, what was it about cartography in the last few decades that you didn't like? Did not, did not like? Did not like. Yeah. Um, it's a good question, actually. There's a lot I haven't liked. I didn't like the way printed maps were looking maybe about 10 or 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember that period. It's sort of the cool automobile maps faded out, and Rand McNally started going downhill, and uh, all that was left really was National Geographic producing a few good maps. I think the real artistic mapping now is coming out of GIS. Uh, to me, that is the best mapping. And it's obviously a different kind of mapping. It can have a paper existence, but it's really a, a computer-based mapping. So, so you mentioned um, GIS and, and digital mapping, but the question from Sean is... Um, with respect to the accuracy of old maps, how accurate were they really? Because you were um, talking about geo-rectified images. Um, were, were they really accurate, and does it matter? Good question. I, the period I collected from about 1700 up to the present, obviously the earlier maps are less accurate. You can still geo-rectify them, though, into a rough approximation of space. Even the Lewis and Clark map, uh, I think I mentioned, I, I might not have mentioned it, but it required 60 points. I think it took me six hours to pull that thing into correct space. But in, in the inaccuracies, you learn a lot about the whole cartographic process that they were doing, and uh, it tells you things. Obviously, the more recent maps, like that map of Yosemite Valley by the Wheeler Survey, took only eight points and it just, clachunk, went right into perfect space because it was very accurate to begin with. So the only maps that are very difficult to georectify, of course, are those that are oblique, like those bird's eye view. We've actually tried pulling those into correct space, but it's, they look quite odd and uh, not entirely appropriate. We always try to preserve the original map along with the georectified map. So there's no question that there has a process of alteration, alteration has been done. That's, that's, we try to do that as, as sort of good librarians. Um, here's a question from Mike Leopold. Um, can you talk a little about progress integrating geospatial metadata? And if you need help in, I'll, I'll read the question again. Okay. I don't fully understand it, but can you talk a little about progress integrating geospatial metadata? Mike, do you want to explain that a little bit? Um, well, I understand that map cartographic data has different 
Yeah, good, good, good question. It is, it is a real difficulty still in the current GIS to get all the layers to work together, primarily because of the problem of projection. You may have some interesting species data that's in a Mercator projection. What that means is, uh, you know, we, when you take a map uh, to represent three-dimensional space and you're back up from the ground a bit, you've got to, you've seen, you've got to have a globular projection. You have various ways of showing it. And then the data has to all be in the same projection for them to really work. Um, only recently, the latest version of the ESRI software, act, act, software will reproject things on the fly so that if you have layers with different projections, it's not a problem. What I really love about this globular projection that I'm showing you here is that by default, everything will be in the same continuous projection and it won't be an issue anymore. So I think progress is coming, but it's, it's still uh, a challenge with GIS. Have a couple more questions. This is one of your favorite questions. I know you get it every time. Can you find treasure maps on your site? Yeah, we we got email about those. They're they're hidden actually. Um, I, I'm not sure what treasure maps are, but we we have very accurate old maps, and I know treasure obsessed people use our old maps a lot. So. Just, you know, go to the place that you're interested in and choose the time period, and you may well find some kinds of annotations, some kinds of names of places that uh, could lead you to, you know, different kinds of treasures. Okay, so before I, I, I uh, read this last question, I just want to remind people that David would sign books that are the few that we have cartographic extraordinaire uh, that you're willing to do it. So here's, here's the last question. Um, so there's a, a Mayan saying that the universe is built out of stories. What is the most surprising story that your efforts revealed which has significance for long-term thinking? That's by Andrew Lawton. Um, well, I, I guess for me... Uh, th this was this came up early in my association with with long now I was trying to understand how my looking back could make me look forward it seems sort of antithetical by nature but for me these stories that show change uh, are very powerful and they somehow I don't know they embolden me to think about the future for instance one of the very first things I ever collected was a little school atlas published in 1839 of the United States, and it showed Texas as an independent nation. And I knew that Texas had been independent as a country before it became a state, but there it was, you know, bright colors, the nation of Texas. And it just said sort of whole worlds to me about the effect that we have through our political yearnings through our actions on the environment. Um, and I think that kind of story sort of emboldens me to use, I see these new GIS tools as the real tools to allow us to anticipate change for the first time, to really be able to think long term, think about how our environment uh, is moving in time, where it's going. I mean, we know that we're we're doing lots of things to the earth. It's the only place we have. And so 
visualization tools that can show us how things have happened in the past and allow us to look ahead, I think are embodied in these maps. So I think you kind of make your own stories with them. Thank you. That was wonderfully visual for us to look, think in pictures. Thank you for taking time to um, share with us your obsession. I'd like to remind people that David's not the only one who's put everything on the internet. If you have a friend who missed this talk or past talks, there are video and audio versions of the talk on the Long Now website. Thank you, David, very much. Thank you.